0: And I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to First Timothy, First Timothy chapter one. And this morning we're going to be looking at verses twelve through twenty. First Timothy chapter one, and we'll be looking at verses twelve through twenty. We're currently in a series in First Timothy entitled "A House by His Design," and we uh, spent a couple of weeks looking at the first part of uh, the first chapter of First Timothy. And this morning we will be wrapping up the first chapter. So we'll be looking at the second half of first, uh, chapter 1 of 1 Timothy. So I'll begin reading for us in verse 12, and I'll read through to the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. I still hear pages, which is great. So I'll, let you, I'll give you just a second to get there. All right, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith in a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we are so grateful for the privilege to gather together as your church and to worship you. And Lord, what a blessing it is to gather now around Your Word and to hear You speak to us through Your Word. Father, we pray that as we come to this time that You would give us clear minds and hearts. Lord, we pray that we would be eager to learn and to grow. We pray that we would be eager to know You. We pray that we would be eager for You to change us and transform us in any way that You so desire. Lord, You know every person in this room. You know every thought that is being thought right now. You know the disposition of every heart. Will You show us grace and mercy? Will You come with Your Word and speak into our every need for Your glory? And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. Periodically, a publication will compile their list of what they believe to be the most influential people in the history of the world. So it might be the 25 most influential people in the history of the world or the 100 most influential people in the history of the world. And no doubt when one compiles a list chronicling the most influential people in the history of the world, the Apostle Paul should be included in that list. More than any other follower of Jesus, we could say that the Apostle Paul has had the greatest influence on the global spread of Christianity. Just one example, the New Testament is compiled of 27 books, And of those 27 books that make up the New Testament, 13, or perhaps 14, depending on who you believe wrote the book of Hebrews, were written by the Apostle Paul. So 27 books in the New Testament, 13 or 14 of them are written by this one man. And in 1 Timothy, even as we open up into chapter 1, we learn a number of important things about the Apostle Paul. One, we learn that he is the author of this letter. Look there in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith. So Paul wrote this letter here. Not only that, but we learn from these opening verses that Paul was an apostle. So Paul was a man, given the fact that he's an apostle, we know that Paul was a man who saw the resurrected Christ. Not only did he see Jesus after he was raised from the dead, but Jesus specifically called him and commissioned him to proclaim and preserve the message of the gospel. And so Paul speaks and he writes with apostolic authority on behalf of the Lord Jesus. But as we come into our verses this morning, verses 12 through 20 of chapter 1, we get even greater insight into the personal and spiritual life of the Apostle Paul. And we learn here in these verses that although it is true that Paul is the author of this letter and so many other letters in the New Testament, although it's true that he's an apostle and he speaks with apostolic authority, if you really want to know who Paul is, if you really want to know who he is at his core, we learn in these verses this morning that Paul is a sinner saved by grace. And that, my friends, is his defining reality That, more than anything else, explains the life, the ministry, the global effectiveness of the Apostle Paul. If you were to take this one thing away, there would be no Apostle Paul in the history of the world. But it was this one thing, this reality that he was a sinner and a sinner saved by grace that transformed and changed his life, and the Apostle Paul never got over it. It dramatically affected his life more than anything else, and it defined his experience. And so, my friends, this morning, as we look at our text and as we consider this very personal account from the Apostle Paul, I want you to be reflecting on some of these questions in your own mind and heart. I want you to be asking yourself as we look at the life and the testimony of the Apostle Paul, have I experienced the grace of God in my life? Have I experienced the life-transforming grace of God in my life in such a way that it's turned me inside out and upside down? Is that true of you? And if so, if you have experienced the grace of God in your life, are you rejoicing in that grace? And is that grace compelling you even now to share His love with others and to help others grow in grace? As we look at our text this morning, I want us to consider our passage in three parts. First of all, we will consider Paul thanks Jesus for personal salvation. Paul thanks Jesus for personal salvation. This is found in verses 12 through 14. Secondly, Paul exalts in God for his salvation of sinners. Paul exalts in God for his salvation of sinners. And this is found in verses 15 through 17. And then third, Paul entrusts Timothy with God's message of salvation. Paul entrusts Timothy with God's message of salvation in verses 18 through 20. So look there in verse 12, and first of all, we'll consider Paul thanks Jesus for personal salvation. Paul writes, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer." persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. So, we see here in these verses that grace was not an abstract concept for the Apostle Paul, but he himself was a product of grace. It defined his life. It defined his experience. And here in verse 13, Paul reminds Timothy of his former life. He says that he was a blasphemer. He was a persecutor. He was an insolent opponent. And listen, my friends, Paul is not exaggerating here just for effect. This is not clickbait. This is not fake news. This is the real deal. Paul, before he was converted, he was a blasphemer. He blasphemed God. And he blasphemed his son by denying that Jesus is the Messiah. By rejecting the, G- the, the reality that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Not only that, Paul was a persecutor. Paul was passionately determined to smother and to destroy the followers of Jesus. And he was an insolent opponent. That word insolent means boldly rude or disrespectful, insulting. And Paul took great pleasure in insulting and humiliating the followers of Jesus, whether by verbal attack or by imprisonment or by violence or by murder. Paul was all of these things. And grace was all the more sweeter to the Apostle Paul because he never forgot his former life. Paul never forgot where he came from. Paul never became so enamored by the new respect and love that he experienced in his new life that he hid or minimized the sins of his former life. Paul is always reminding himself and reminding others of where he came from. So, in Acts chapter 22, verses 4 through 5, Paul is speaking to the Jews in the temple in Jerusalem. And Paul confesses, I persecuted this way. Uh, Early on, the Christian faith was referred to as the way. That's what he's referring to. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished." Or as Paul is standing standing trial before King Agrippa, he says in Acts chapter 26, verses 9 through 11, I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest, but when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. When Paul writes to the church in Galatia, Paul acknowledges in Galatians chapter 1, verse 13, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. Now, my friends, understand that it is this Paul that that we just read of here when he is traveling on the road to Damascus full of rage against God and against his son, the Lord Jesus. Full of blasphemous thoughts and intentions. Full of intentions to attack and destroy and persecute and stamp out the church of the Lord Jesus Christ that by sheer sovereign grace in that moment, the risen, resurrected Lord appeared to him, knocked him off his horse, arrested him by his grace, and called him to be a mighty apostle for the Lord Jesus. Do you understand that when that happened in the Apostle Paul's life, he had not marked on his connection card I want to learn more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Paul had not signed up for an inquiry class to learn about Jesus and his life and how he could be one of his followers. Paul was absolutely dead set against Jesus. He wanted to have nothing to do with him. In fact, he wanted to discredit Jesus so that his name would never be spoken again. And in that moment, the sovereign Lord Jesus appeared to him and saved him. And Paul never got over it. He never got over it. He couldn't help but tell of it all the time. And every time he spoke of it, his heart was full of joy. He couldn't imagine that the Lord Jesus had done such a thing. Notice how he speaks of God's grace in verse 13 and 14. He says in verse 13, But I received mercy, and then he says in verse 14, And the grace of the Lord overflowed for me. Now imagine this. It is as though the unbelief and the insolence and the pride and the arrogance and the blasphemy and the violence, had Paul had had used that to build a wall between himself and God. It was like a dam that kept him separated from God. And yet, when God directed His conquering grace in the direction of the Apostle Paul, it overflowed that dam, it busted wide open, and Paul found himself awash in the grace of God. He was overflowed with the grace and the mercy of God. And listen, my friends, this is the only way that anyone becomes a Christian. You see, some people, might have, some people might have the notion, the misguided notion, that some people inherit it, or some people earn it, or some people deserve it. But then there's those other people like the Apostle Paul, and they're so wicked and they're so bad that it has to be given to them. No, my friends, that's not the case at all. Do you understand this morning that this is the only way that anyone, anyone becomes a Christian? Solely by grace and by mercy. And notice that this grace that overflows into Paul's life and takes him over. Notice that it has an effect in his life. It creates something in his life. This grace not only saves, but it transforms you see there in verse 14, he says, and the grace of the Lord overflowed from me, here it is, with the faith and the love that are in Christ Jesus. One author has put it this way, the Nile, referring to the Nile River, the Nile overflows and the crops abound. Grace overflowed and faith and love sprang up. That's what happens when the grace of God intersects into our lives and captures us and overflows over our lives. Where there is a hard, barren, brittle heart of unbelief, the grace of God overflows our hearts and faith in Christ springs up. And with Paul here, where there's a heart of hatred and violence and enmity, the grace of God overflows his heart and love for God and love for others springs up. My friends, I do wonder this morning, do you have a similar testimony, a similar testimony of God's grace in your life, a a time when God's grace so overwhelmed you and overflowed into your life that faith in Christ sprung up and love for God and love for others became a reality in your life? Now, let me be clear. As you look back on your own conversion, it may not be as dramatic as what the Apostle Paul is describing here, but let me also assure you, it is no less miraculous. Because every Christian conversion is a resurrection. Every Christian conversion is a resurrection from spiritual death to spiritual life. Whether you are a religious zealot and murderer like the Apostle Paul here, or whether you're a child growing up in a Christian home, if the Lord Jesus visits you with His grace, it is a miracle because it's a resurrection. Resurrection from death to life. And Paul here is struck by the grace and the mercy of God. And he rejoices and thanks the Lord Jesus that He has looked upon Him with grace. Now, secondly, Paul exalts in God for his salvation of sinners. Paul exalts in God for his salvation of sinners. Look there in verses 15 to 17, and we read these words The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. To the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Well, it seems here in verse 15 that the Apostle Paul is citing an early Christian creed or hymn. He prefaces it with these words, I think, or I'm sorry, verse 15, "...the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance." And here's here's what seems to be an early creed or confession. "...Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners." And so do you notice the transition that's taking place here in the passage? Paul begins by reflecting on his own personal salvation and he's giving the Lord Jesus thanks for his own personal salvation. But then as he reflects on his personal salvation, his his mind expands and he rejoices in the reality that God's grace is not just for him, but God's grace is for all sinners. And Paul knows this By the reality of his own personal experience. His own personal experience confirms this truth. He says the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Here it is. Of whom I am the foremost. I'm the chief of sinners. Now, we do need to ask the question here. Was Paul the greatest of all sinners? Was he the greatest sinner to ever live? Did Paul have a full and complete knowledge of all sinners that had lived in the past, in the present, and would live in the future? And he had carefully analyzed all of their sins and uh, misdeeds and then analyzed his own and done a comparison and determined that, yes, he was the greatest sinner that had ever lived. Well, I do think that Paul here is trying to emphasize that there is an egregious nature to the sins that he committed and the type of sin that he was involved in. But I don't think that's finally or ultimately Paul's point. I think what Paul is getting at here is that when the Lord Jesus confronted him on the road to Damascus, and when the eyes of his heart were opened and he saw his own sin, in that moment the Apostle Paul could not imagine a greater sinner on the earth. It reminds me of the story that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 9. There's two men and they make their way to the temple One of them is a Pharisee. He's a religious leader. And he prays to God and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, liars and thieves and adulterers. I'm a religious man. I attend services regularly and I give my tithe and I give to the charity and I fast and I pray. And then Jesus says, There's another man who comes into the temple and he's a tax collector. And listen, I don't care what you think about the IRS, it pales in comparison to what the Jews in Jesus' day thought of tax collectors. The tax collectors themselves would have been Jews gathering taxes from the Jews, but they worked for Rome, a foreign occupier, and so in that way they had sold out, they had betrayed their people, or at least it was perceived that way. And not only would they collect taxes for Rome, for the state, but then they would require that the people give a little bit more and they would take what was left off the top for themselves. And so in this way they were dishonest. They had betrayed their people. They were deceivers. And this tax collector comes into the temple... And he comes into the temple, and he is, he's looked down upon by all his peers. And Jesus says that he beats his chest. And he says, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. It's interesting because the translation there does not read, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Like I'm one sinner among many sinners. But Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner, as though I am the only sinner who has ever lived. And I do think there's a sense that when someone first of all, the first time they come, genuinely come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and they see their sins for the first time, There is a sense in which, in that moment, that person just feels the weight of their sin in such a way that they are not able, even though this person over here may be sinning, and this person over here may have done some wrong things, and this person over here has a bad reputation, in that moment, they don't have time to compare and analyze and weigh it all out and see whether they're a bigger sinner or those people over there, what they deserve, what I deserve. No, in that moment, they sense, I am a sinner, And I need mercy. And they cry out to the Lord, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Paul knew what that was like. Could you imagine in that moment when Paul realized for the first time that everything he had devoted his life to was so misguided? Can you imagine the weight and the burden of sin he must have felt? And Paul says that in that sense, he's the foremost, the chief of all sinners. But notice that as Paul reflects on his conversion and as he reflects on what God has done in his life, Paul discerns that there is a reason why God has saved him and a reason why God has called him to be an apostle. Look there in verse 16, he writes, "'But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost,' Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You know, one of the great errors of our age is that some people assume, even though they may have very little interest in God, very little knowledge of God, they assume, well, of course God will save me. Why wouldn't he? But there are others, there are others who feel, whether whether it's because of the intensity of the conviction that the law works in their hearts, or whether it's because of their sensitivity of their own conscience, or whether it's because of the severity of the transgressions that they have committed against God, they wonder, could God save a sinner like me? I've met with folks like this. And they just can't seem to get an assurance of salvation. They wonder, my sins too great? Is my heart too corrupt? Am I a lost cause? Have I gone too far? And do you see what the Apostle Paul is saying here? Paul is saying, yes, God will save you. God saved me, a religious zealot and terrorist, a blasphemer, a murderer. And do you want to know why God saved me? You want to know why God saved someone like me and called me to be an apostle? So that you would know that he is willing to save someone like you. God showed me grace to be an example of his extraordinary patience and mercy and grace that he has come to save all sinners. You know, unfortunately, one might conclude by hearing some conservative zealots today that if someone's participated in homosexuality or someone has had an abortion, they are beyond the reach of God's grace. Or by listening to Some liberal zealots today, you might conclude that if one is a bigot or one is a racist, that they're too reprehensible to experience God's redeeming love. But Paul says, no, this saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And he came to save all kinds of sinners. Real sinners, not imaginary sinners, not theoretical sinners, but real sinners, liars and cheats, thieves and adulterers, drunks, disobedient children, men who are addicted to pornography, gossips, slanderers, all kinds of sinners, old and young, small and great, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. Jesus came to save sinners, and He died on the cross, and He took the punishment and the penalty for our sins in order that He might redeem us. When the Apostle Paul spoke of this grace and this mercy, whether he was reflecting on it in his own life or he was considering the reality of it for all people, Paul could not help but rejoice and to exalt in God. Notice this. In verse 12, he begins this section by saying, "...I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord." And then he ends this section as he's reflecting on God's grace in his own life and the extension of God's grace to all sinners. In verse 17, he ends this section by saying, To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He bookends the experience of his grace with thanksgiving and praise. He begins with thanksgiving and he ends with praise. Last week we sang the hymn in our service, There Is a Fountain Filled with Blood. And I love verse 4. Ere since by faith I saw the stream, Thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. That was Paul's testimony. Once the redeeming love of God's grace had grabbed hold of his life, Paul never forgot it. And we could imagine that the Apostle Paul was the type of person that whenever he recounted the grace of God in his life, he did so with a tear in his eye, with a heart full of joy, and with praise on his lips. And may it be true of us. When we reflect on our own conversion and God's grace in our lives, may it result in doxology, may it result in praise and thanksgiving, even spontaneously so, as the grace of God becomes sweeter and sweeter to us as the years go by. Now third, we see in our text that Paul entrusts Timothy with God's message of salvation. Paul entrusts Timothy with God's message of salvation. Look there in verse 18 and we read these words. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, Paul there mentions a charge in verse 18, this charge I entrust to you. And Paul here is referring back to a charge that he had given Timothy in verses 3 through 5. This seems to be what he's referring back to. If you look back in verses 3 through 5, Paul there urges Timothy to charge certain persons, not to teach any different doctrine. And he's entrusted this charge to Timothy. And and one of the reasons he's entrusted this charge to Timothy is because here we see at the end of the chapter, by some neglecting this charge... They've actually wandered from the faith. They've made shipwreck of their faith. And so, as this is kind of a review from the last couple of weeks, but but Paul here is charging Timothy, or, or he's urging Timothy to charge others to not give themselves to different doctrines. And what are these different doctrines? They're bogus, speculative, mystical readings of the Old Testament that lead to vain discussions, that lead to myths. And some are so enamored with these things that they have lost their zeal, their passion for the gospel, and they've lost their faith. Now, there's much we could say about these verses, and we could press into them much deeper, but I just want to, as we, as we put these verses in the larger scope of chapter 1, I just want to make this one observation and state this one principle. What we see here in these verses is that a true love and a true zeal for gospel ministry always stems from... A personal experience of God's grace. A true love and zeal for gospel ministry always stems from a personal experience of God's grace. Do you see how that's working here in chapter one? Paul, in the previous verses, is overwhelmed by the grace and the mercy of God in his life. And therefore, what is he doing? He's urging Timothy. He's investing himself in Timothy's life so that Timothy would work to preserve the truth of the gospel. Paul is overwhelmed with the grace and the mercy of God in his life, and so what does he do? He confronts Hymenaeus, and he confronts Alexander, and he disciplines them and removes them from the church in hopes that they will come back in repentance so that the gospel in this church would be preserved and so that the gospel would be clearly proclaimed. And so what we see in chapter 1 is that, that Paul is a man that's been taken by the grace of God, and therefore he zealously works and labors and ministers in order to preserve and proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ so that others might experience this love and mercy. So my friends, listen, this is a simple principle, but it's so important to understanding the Christian life and even our effectiveness as disciples of Jesus. If you want to be an effective servant and disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, then give yourself to knowing and appreciating the grace and mercy of God. Grow in your understanding of your own need for God's grace and mercy, the reality of your own sin, and grow in a deeper appreciation and joy and thankfulness for God's extravagant, sovereign, free, overwhelming, overflowing grace and mercy and love in your life. If that happens, my friends, you will be empowered You will be compelled, you will be moved forward in the grace of God to minister to others in a way that is effective and brings glory to God. You know, when I read the account here of the Apostle Paul thinking back on his own conversion and reveling and rejoicing in the grace and the mercy of God, I can't help but think of John Newton. John Newton was a pastor and a hymn writer, and the most famous hymn that he wrote was Amazing Grace. I'm sure that most of us here this morning know the first line, at least, of Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And John Newton was a wretch of a man." Before he was converted, Newton spent many years active in the African slave trade, and as he looks back over his life, he confesses in his own words that prior to his conversion, quote, "...I was capable of anything. I had not the least fear of God before my eyes." Nor so far as I remember, the least sensibility of conscience. End of quote. He's essentially saying, I was a man without a conscience. And yet, through a series of events, the Lord miraculously and wondrously works in Newton's life and saves him by his grace. And Newton is transformed so that Newton becomes a man who's called to gospel ministry. He becomes a man whom God enables to write Christian hymns. He becomes a man who's actually used by God to bring an end to the British slave trade. In fact, after Newton's conversion, he pastored two churches for the rest of his life over a span of 43 years. So just two churches in a span of 43 years. He lived until he was 82 years old. And in his last days, he was on his deathbed. He was very weak, almost unable to speak. And he had a friend who was there by his bedside. And Newton shared with his friend these words. My memory is nearly gone, but I remember two things. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. I remember two things. I am a great sinner. And Christ is a great Savior. Oh, my friends, Newton was a man just like the Apostle Paul who never got over the grace of God. And it should be our desire that if everything else leaves our mind in our latter days, those two things might we remember. We are great sinners, and Christ is a great Savior. By the grace and mercy of God, may we never get over the miraculous work of grace that God has done in our lives. And may it change us, transform us, and compel us to minister to others in love. For the glory of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we're so thankful for your word and so thankful for your grace. Father, we thank you for the work that you did in the Apostle Paul's life. We're thankful, Lord, for how radically you saved him and transformed him. And Lord, what an encouragement it should be to all of us this morning. Lord, I do pray for any who are here this morning who have not truly trusted in the Lord Jesus and experienced that grace. Lord, I pray that as you confronted the Apostle Paul and as you transformed and changed his life, Lord, I pray that you would do that work now. Lord, I pray that no matter what background someone might come from, no matter what misdeeds they may have done in the past, I pray that none of those things would discourage them or keep them from looking to You in faith. And so, Lord, we pray that You would do the miracle of salvation even now in these moments. And, Lord, we pray for ourselves, those of us who have trusted in Christ. I pray for those who may have become indifferent or hard or even cold to the work of Your grace in their lives. Lord, we pray that You would work in our hearts as You did in the life of the Apostle Paul so that Your grace would always be fresh. And and Lord, we would always be filled with thanksgiving and joy as we consider Your mercy. Father, help us to be a people who love and rejoice in Your grace. And may it compel us to be effective ministers for Your glory. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray.